add a bit of sunshine to your home with Easy Living Furniture's Garden Furniture Sale with stunning dining sets, cracking egg chairs and relaxing sun loungers that are in stock and ready for delivery there really is something for everyone and with an extra 10% off sale prices and free delivery over 399 now really is the time to let your garden shine Garden Sale now on Visit Easy Living Furniture Don't miss out Find your local store online at easylivingfurniture.ie Leia Healthcare It's good to live Proud sponsor of the Real Health Podcast with Carl Henry Welcome to the Real Health Podcast in association with Leia Healthcare with me, Carl Henry Folks, this week's show is a little bit different We've decided to go left to centre to talk to Professor Luke O'Neill, a professor of biochemistry in Trinity, dubbed the best immunologist in the world, in the top 1% of the most cited researchers in his field. He's written a fascinating book called Humanology, Answering the 20 Burning Questions About Life and Our Existence. I'm going to find out from Professor Luke O'Neill about the science and the real facts to laughter, positivity, sleeping, food and protein, and also how he moonlights as a lead singer in the rock band, The Metabolics. This is not your ordinary biochemistry professor interview. Professor Luke O'Neill, welcome to The Real Health Podcast. Thanks very much. You're an author. I am. Who'd have thought it? Yes. <laughs> was a book something you always wanted to do? Uh, just funny. I was kind of, yeah. Uh, I do loads of writing as a scientist, which only scientists read, you see, and it's very technical. I've done a couple of books before, but uh, but very techy kind of immunology stuff, you know. This is the first one I was asked to do was for a lay audience. And Gil approached me, Sarah Liddy said, would I write a book? I said, well, maybe. I was a bit cautious at first, you know. It was a bit like um, writing your essay in school. I gave her like a few lines or whatever, and she liked it. And then, then we took her from there. So then it took off. Really. This was brilliant. Well, I suppose people are fascinated about our existence. They're fascinated about life. Um, and they want to know more. So it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a really clever market. I want to chat through a few of them with you. Um, the first one, which I'm intrigued by, is why do we laugh? Yes. I'm intrigued by that. Why do we laugh? Isn't it great? Yeah, no, no you're right. There's a fascination with the human condition, really. And can you use science to understand what it is to be a human being? And laughter marks us out as a species, you see. Now, I think the hyena seems to laugh, but it doesn't really, you know. Um, <laughs> certain primates do laugh. Gorillas and apes, great apes, do actually laugh a bit. But humans, we're laughing all the time, you see. And the psychologists wonder, why, why do humans laugh so much? And um, first and foremost, it's social. It's not laughing at jokes. So one study I mentioned is they filmed in a shopping mall for a few days and watched people, people watching, I suppose, and they noticed a lot of laughter happening. But it's mainly social. You meet your friend, you laugh together. You know, it's often a sign to say we're safe. You know, we can we can enjoy each other's company. So it's eighty percent is social and twenty percent is a joke. And then a the big fascination is why do we find things funny? I suppose so. It's a psychological topic. I think it's a fascination. So it's it in some respects it's a comforter. It takes the it takes the stress out of situations, it takes the awkwardness out of situations, and comforts both sides of the of the, of, of meeting. Absolutely, We're, us humans are interesting. And in the book again, I go how, how we arose in the first place in Africa two hundred thousand years ago. Homo sapiens emerges as a very clever species, you see, and that brings with it all kinds of, of burdens. One is status obsession, so we worry about where, where we are in the pecking order. So if you meet a stranger, what are you going to do? You're going to fight him. You're going to try to get to know him. Laughter is actually part of the process of just getting to know the other person in a way, you know, and it's part of our evolution as a very clever species, I guess, on Earth. Wow. And in terms of evolution, though, in ter- what else have we... Let's talk about, I just, I'm sure there's loads. Let's talk about sleep, for example. Yes, uh, we've yeah. had sleep experts on the show. Sleep is a big topic on the Real Health Podcast. It always is. Yeah. Um, how do... 
how do the how do our sleep or biorhythms, I yeah. suppose, come about? How how do how did it sleep come around? Absolutely. Well, again, I'm very molecular. I'm a biochemist kind of by training. And what, what, what's the body clock? And it's a real clock in your body with real cogs. And the cogs are made of proteins. There's one called BMAL that goes up and down all through the day. It cycles up and down your brain, you see. And that's a good example of a, what we call a circadian rhythm. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sleep, sleep is the most striking thing that happens to us in 24 hours. We fall asleep. You, know, you, you can't mistake that. And that's because melatonin rises around 8, 9 o'clock in the evening and that's your natural sleeping pill that your body makes and then you fall asleep and you sleep for maybe 6, 7, 8, 9 hours on average you know there's a mix there between different people Is there a magic number? It varies hugely I mean I mean, some people get away with 4 hours which sounds ridiculous I mean I'm lucky I get away with 5 myself 5 hours? I do I think 5 or 6 and if I go beyond that I'm more tired the next day you see other people 9, 10, 11 hours you see and teenagers are famous that something happens during that (laughs) developmental phase they'll stay in bed for 15 or 16 hours you see so so it varies but on average it's about 7 hours is probably the average in humans okay. overall and what is the variation is, do some people have more melatonin do some people have more of that protein that you are talking about earlier or what's the what's the variation between yeah. you know one person and the next great question we'd love to know that yeah and there is a clear genetic basis uh, they found a, f- a family amazingly who fell asleep at 7pm every night not 10 or 11pm you see and they studied those people and found a gene that was different in those that seemed to make them fall asleep they're out of sync with the rest of humankind if you like and again it's these clock proteins if they're if too much of them are made or too little that will alter you know your length of sleep so what i love about this is it's a real molecular scientific basis isn't it yeah yeah and this stuff in the last three or four of course the nobel prize in in 2017 was for people who discovered this circadian rhythm first seen in flies fruit flies and it's conserved every species has this sort of 24 hour cycle it happened because the earth has that rotation you know every day and life on earth adapted if you like to that and Every every creature almost on Earth has some kind of twenty four hour cycle, and humans are no different. It's amazing. Isn't it so if, if our listeners are listening in and some of them are, are naturally sleepy people, they like to sleep for hours and hours on end. Now they actually have a reason. Yeah, I wouldn't worry. Yeah, yeah. See, the trouble is you can punish people for things. But it, <laughs> can, it can be perfectly natural to have a bit of a doze, you know, and, and to have a good night's sleep. And, and in fact, as you know, sleep is essential for health. It's one of the big, it's the big three things. If you don't get enough sleep, all kinds of negative things happen. In fact, you die. Not not humans. They've done this in mice. So if you keep a mouse awake, it'll die eventually. So we sleep is essential for our overall well-being. And of course, a lack of it is a bit is a huge problem in terms of stress, in terms of weight gain, in terms of recovery, in terms of injury, in terms yeah. of it puts you at risk of, of, of pretty much everything. And we're the only species that intentionally stays awake. So most species, it's time for bed. If you're a cat or a dog, you fall asleep. No problem. Humans, we're so hyper. <laughs> we'll keep ourselves awake till one and two in the morning. We're looking at our screens or whatever it is. That's not good. I mean, the, the health risk of, of not getting a good night's sleep has, has been known for centuries, really. You know, So it's really important. And in terms of improving sleep, are there scientific thing, you know, things that are proven to, to improve sleep? Absolutely. The two big things are, are regular. You know, your body has a rhythm. Follow your body's rhythm. Don't try and defy it. If you try to avoid your natural rhythm, you're going to be in trouble. To get up, try and get up at the same time, work through the day, have a meal. In fact, food is very interesting. Food can control the body clock as well. If you change eating times, that can disrupt your body clock, amazing as it may seem. So wow. reg- regular meals at the right time and going to bed the same time every night and trying to get that six, seven hours is the key piece of advice and then you'll be okay. So it's about structure. structure that our exactly. bodies react on a scientific level to structure. 
Absolutely. So it, it, it's whatever that, that, that circadian rhythm is, whatever time you normally go to bed, I keep it through the weekends, wake up at the same time, don't yeah. have that big massive lie-in because yeah. it offsets your, your, your rhythm. Routine is your friend in life. It's very boring, isn't it? <laughs> Occasionally, it's okay to have the odd, uh, you know, go off kilter a little bit, but routine is the key. To, I mean, jet lag is the key example of this, you see, because when you move into a time zone, your clock's disrupted. You can disrupt your own clock by eating at the wrong time or by staying up too late and now you're awake and your hormones are all raging. You know? So again, rhythm, rhythm, the natural rhythms is the thing to follow here. So is that what jet lag is then? In terms, in terms of the effects of it, it's, it's literally the structure or the routine changes because the time yeah. changes as you travel. Yeah, it takes, for every hour you travel across the time zone, right? It takes a day for your body clock to readjust. So if you go to America, say, and that's five hours behind, it's going to take you four or five days for your body rhythm to get in, get in sync with it because you've travelled too fast. I'm going, to re- I'm going to repeat that for a listener. It took, it took me about 10 seconds to take that in. Yeah. So for every hour you travel... Time difference. Yeah. Every hour time difference in travel, yeah. it takes one day, day for the body to recover. The body to, re- to adapt, if you like. You know, now if you, In ancient times, we didn't invent jets, did we? You did walk across these time zones and your body was able to keep up. But speed of travel means now you're... So when you fly to America, your body clocks out by four hours, say than what it would be naturally and the melatonin has to get back in sync with the sun the sun by the way is the big um, driver of the main body clock you see and when the sun rises and falls in your brain you pick up the sunlight and of course your body clock is saying no I'm living in Ireland and yet my, the sun is telling me it's um, 4 o'clock in the afternoon my body's saying 9pm I'm, I'm starting to feel sleepy so it, take, it takes as I say almost a day per, per hour travel to, to adjust you see wow. fully adjust yeah and what are the best ways to improve that or improve your body's reaction to it? So Absolutely. people who travel a huge amount, what ways can they reduce yeah. the effects or improve the effects? Well, some take melatonin. And over the counter, that's on sale now. You can buy that, you know. And, and that you take that in a way to try to boost your melatonin just before you go to sleep. You're, you're, in other words, you're, you're souping up your own natural pathway to try and fall asleep when you're in Australia or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's one thing you can do. And that works a bit, you know. The best thing about get in sync with the local environment, especially early in the morning. So, so bright sunlight from dawn the first three hours that resets the body clock usually so get up and about don't don't be in bed at that time especially and try to stay away, stay up if you if you land in new york stay up to the, to the natural bedtime and you'll be dying to go to sleep but try and stay awake next morning get up at the right time don't don't lie in bed you know late and that and that sunlight is going into your brain at the right sort of right time and wow. resets the body clock more quickly so there's ways okay. to speed so the best up. way basically to whatever environment you land into is to adapt to that environment yeah. as quickly as you can exactly. relative to the sun and, and the moon Absolutely. So when the sun comes up, you should be up. Get up and out of bed, yeah. And, and, and your meal times, again, your, your body, you see, what happens at the circadian is your body's making enzymes, say, just before lunchtime to get ready for the food because this, uh, this is an adaptation to the environment. That's, that's efficient, you see. Of course, if you go to America, you're, you're making enzymes at the wrong time as well. Try to eat, even still, try to eat at the regular times. And again, that will begin to get the clock back into, back into sync is the idea. Fascinating. Wow. Isn't it great? Yes, I love all this. <laughs> it's that chapter. Now, my own lab, we work on this. We worked on the circadian system and the immune system. So it turns out that your immune response is stronger at night. Isn't that strange? And during the day, and we don't quite know why that is. It's a bit unusual because you might imagine it to be less active because you're in, a, you know, you're asleep. Of course, but it's probably repairing your tissues in various ways. And a big one was vaccines work better if you give them at night. Isn't that incredible? Because really? the, immu- the immune system is slightly souped up at night for this reason of whatever it might be so again every part of your body is kind of controlled by this 24 hour cycle so if you're getting the flu vaccine ideally get it on the way home from work when it's getting dark and you're going to get into bed yeah and I, I feel so for parents <laughs> bringing their kids into the, the doctor's surgery at, at midnight isn't the best of things is it? that they still work at the other times by the way <laughs> they're just slightly better if you do it at night that's mad that's, that's mad yeah it's incredible um, relationships with food 
talk to me about that. It, it, it we've done four or five food uh, episodes on the Real Health podcast. Every you know couple of months, there's some new diet, there's some whatever people put on weight. I'm fascinated by the science behind our relationship with food, why we eat, how we do, yeah. uh, how our body reacts to it. Uh, how some people you know lose fat quicker than others. How some people gain muscle quicker than others. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the the chemistry behind that and the science behind that. Yeah, yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that. Oh, it's a huge area, as you know. Now, if you're a real scientist, it annoys you this area because <laughs> there's an awful lot of rubbish. You know, <laughs> and very bad science is done around nutrition. Terrible studies. You know, not enough people in the study. All kinds of what we call confounding variables. You know, and all that. So it's very tough scientifically to really get a good handle on this. Having said that, there is great science as well. By the way. <laughs> Okay. But many studies should be ignored or forgotten about because the science isn't good behind them. You know? Okay, well, give so, us the so give us so the look at the data. Is the idea the, here, the right content or the, the content or the stuff that has proof behind it? Yeah, well, again, it's it's simple. The ancients knew this that the biggest thing of all is eat less and exercise more. I mean, you don't need calories to be a in, genius. Calories that, that's all it is. I mean, see, we evolved to eat everything. Humans are omnivorous. So we'll eat whatever's available, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll stuff our faces because in ancient times, back in the savannas of Africa, food was scarce. So if you, if you killed the antelope, you ate as much as you could, right? Yeah. And, and, all, and then the sugar turns into fat very, and we've got great biochemistry in our bodies that we can turn sugar into fat because fat's a great storage, you know, and you can burn fat later if you need it. You know, you're, so, you're making your own reserves kind of. That's why the obesity epidemic is happening because we're having far too many carbs. So we'll take, we'll, take, we'll take whatever sugar we need. Our body will use those. And then yep. beyond that, so the excess sugar and the excess excess added sugar converts into fat, fat into, yeah. in the body. And, and then remember, in ancient times, then you took exercise. We ran away. We were always on the go. In the book, I call this, you know, eat, um, eat, uh, run, eat kind of thing, you know, was the thing, as opposed to run, fat boy, run. That's not a good analogy. <laughs> so I mentioned that in the book. But, um, but that was the way we evolved. That was right? a movie. Remember that? Wasn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah, with yeah Simon, run, fat boy, run. Simon, oh, what's his name? Uh, yeah, Simon, yeah. he's in The Mission Impossible. He is. Oh, brilliant, brilliant movie, yeah. <laughs> but but it, it shouldn't be run, fat boy, run. It should be eat, run, eat is our natural cycle, you see. And now that's broken. There's no doubt the evidence tells us less, no exercise and eating too much is the deadly combination you know so this is obvious in a way but science we know the scientific basis for this because we evolved to gorge and then take loads of exercise and diet effectively starve a bit and then gorge again now you fast forward to today food is abundant we'll keep eating it we're evolved to keep scoffing you see and we're also a bit lazy so so you know the old couch potato that's all true so, so that's that the science behind that's really really strong you see is the way to think of it what what people don't realize is obesity can be genetic and there's no doubt there's a natural aspect to obesity so, so, so to criticize people who are obese is wrong really in many ways and is there proof to it, it do, do can we can we see that that we can just trace it back through genetic profiling absolutely yeah yeah really? and in fact i mentioned two hor- there's three hormones in the book i mentioned one is called leptin now, yeah. now leptin is amazing and an irish scientist called stephen o'rahley who's actually a good friend of mine he works in cambridge he's famous for kind of working on leptin there was a, a kid and he, he's, a, he's a he's a physician and he works on obesity and a very obese child came into his hospital one day and he, he spotted that this child had a deficiency in leptin that child's body wasn't making enough leptin. And he gave that kid leptin and the, the fat melted away. Now, when that happened, oh, this could be a great thing, you know, give this to everybody, you know. And the great line here is, can you have your cake and eat it? You know, so in other words, you can scoff and take some leptin. <laughs> the leptin tablet afterwards. Did, didn't work out because for most people, you're, you're uh, resistant to your own leptin. So the, the obesity you become, the less sensitive you are to your own. It's a bit like yeah. diabetes. So type 2 diabetes, you come in and it's similar. So leptin wasn't the answer in the end. But still, that just shows you a single hormone was really controlling obesity in a human being, and that may have consequences down the line. Another one is called FGF21, which is made after a sweet meal. If you drink a, 
a fizzy drink full of sugars, your body makes that and then you go off sweet food a bit and it limits your desire for sweet food. Again, people who have less of that take too much sugar and they get obese. You know? So again, there's, there's a real link into hormones controlling these things. So it's not just greediness or, or lifestyle necessarily. There's a hormonal basis to obesity as well. And it's a massive research area to get, to get more information. It's huge. On it. Yeah, because yeah, it's huge, isn't it? Yeah, people you know, it, we know we're expanding as a nation, as a, as, as a country, as a, as a pop- global population. Uh, and a lot of the time it is pulled back to the calories in, calories out, and it's your own fault if you're obese. Yeah. But actually, that, that, might, that may not be the case. It's not as simple. And there's a huge psychological effect of food as well. We love food, don't we? Let's face it. You know, And there's all these studies. A great one I mentioned in the book is if you eat food off a round plate, it tastes sweeter. Isn't that ridiculous? No and way. we don't know why that is. That's a big really? mystery. Yes. Or if you take a, col- a colored <laughs> liquid, if you take a liquid with, with, with sugar in it and it's red colored, it tastes much sweeter than a yellow colored liquid. No yeah, It's the same amount of sugar. Same amount of sugar. So again, our brains are picking up on cues. A big question is, can you become addicted to food? And, and there's some evidence for this that when, um, when a kid eats some ice cream, the same part of their brain lights up as if they've kind of had heroin. Not quite as bad as that, mm-hmm. but the same rewards. And so we're, we're, we're desperate as a species. In and many is, ways, is, you know. is that addiction pulled back to sugar because there is that that argument of sugar being fully addictive as you know as dr- as a drug yeah you got to be the word addiction is a bit loaded because it's not like you're looking for heroin all the time <laughs> but there's certainly a habit there and a desire to get more you know and sugar is a sugar is a wonderful source of energy remember our, our bodies suck up glucose to beat the band and it's a key source of energy for us so of course we evolved to want it you know and desire it and go after it and mother's milk is where this starts by the way i mean that that's where that's very sugary and that's sugar Lactose? Absolutely, yeah. And there's various types. Lactose is the main one. And then we're burning that then. The, the, the baby's burning that to make, you know, for energy purposes. Um, but it's also using glucose to build some of its own tissues. You can turn glucose into fat. You can turn glucose into amino acids and use it to build proteins. So it's a wonderful food stuff. It's a superfood in many ways, glucose. And that's why we evolved to be obsessed with it, you know, and really well, desire it. Superfood I've never read in the paper yet. Well, 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 well <laughs> superfood is probably the wrong word for it, but certainly it, it sort of has a, it's, it's a lot going for glucose, except we take well, too much of it. And if, if, if presumably it is in fruit. Absolutely. Uh, fructose, obviously, Absolutely. obviously, as well. And we love fruit as a species. We evolved this massive desire to, for sweet things, you see. And what, what do we do as a species? We make food and we modify it, load it up with sugar, and lo and behold, it sells by the truckload, doesn't it? It's very clever, in a way, you know. Now, the food companies are realizing this, by the way. Coca Cola is changing its policy, as you know. Nestle are a good example. They realized. Are they selling stuff that's da- da- damaging to your health? And they become much more health conscious. And th- thankfully, that's happening because mm-hmm. of this epidemic that's there. And the epidemic of obesity is horrendous. I mean, who'd have thought the Western world would be huge amount of obesity? That was unthinkable 100 years ago where people were starving or people couldn't get enough food. And, and yet we've now inverted that in a way. So it's a big, it's a big issue. This. Even in the it's 50, 60 years that, that those massive changes have happened. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's simply nutritional. And of course, the worst part of this is it's, it's, the, it's the lower socioeconomic groupings are getting obese because the food is cheap. They can buy it in their local supermarket and buy big, huge two-liter bottles of whatever it is, you know, and they, they, they're they the ones who are then at risk of obesity and, and they're taking less exercise. So this is a big social issue as well, I think. Talk to me about protein. Yeah, essential, as you know. Yes, that's the key building block of, of so many different things. And um, what's fascinating there is that the body has a way of sensing the amount of protein in your diet so you don't overload. Now, by the way, any food you go off, like if you're eating a meal, and you're hungry, you'll eventually say, oh, I don't fancy any more of that strawberry meringue, do I? You know, so your body has a way of um, not eating too much of one thing and then recovering to stop getting poison is the reason. Probably if you keep eating the one thing, you might get poisoned. Protein is a very good way of shutting off your appetite. 
So the body can sense the amino acids coming off it, and they, they seem to go to the brain as, as sensing that, and, they, and then your, your appetite goes. So the, quick, the quickest way to, to, to have a, 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 a lower portion, if you like, that's full of protein is good, because then you'll feel fuller quicker. And that's why protein fills you up for longer because Absolutely. again, ever it's thankfully it's become the the recommendation. That you have protein in pretty much every meal if you can. You know, you combine it with people combine it with like nut butter and fruit, where they try and combine things yeah. with protein because it makes you feel fuller for Absolutely, longer and it slows yeah. down the absorption of of sugar. All right. that stuff, yeah, it's very good for that. And and again, we don't fully know why that is. Then again, mechanistically, it'd be great to suss out the part of the brain being triggered that you could do that artificially. Maybe you never know, you know, and limit the, the ill effects of overeating, I suppose. But protein, the, the great thing about food, I remember your, your variety is this literally the spice of life here. <laughs> bit of protein, bit of carb, you know, bit of fat. They're the three big building blocks. Get that combination right and. And then you're going to be you're going to be okay. I think is the way to think of it. I'm going to take it on to aging now. Um, we've an aging population. We want them to age healthier and age better. Um, talk to, talk to us through from a scientific perspective the aging process. Uh, what we're seeing on a global level. Um, what's the what are the studies showing? Well, it's a fascination. I love this. In the book, it's I picked on my favourite topics in a way. You know? <laughs> and we're all getting older. We can all relate to that, can't we? Especially on a Monday morning or whatever. You feel like, oh, how old am I now? You know. So we're all getting older. Um, the fact is, most life on Earth ages. Some creatures don't. Strange, they don't seem to. You know, like bacteria, for instance, just keep dividing. There's some evidence they eventually go off. But but every every organism ages. And the big mystery is why do we live 80, 90 years, and, and a mouse lives for three years? You see, or a dog might live three. for four. 14 years. Mice live for three years. Yeah, but on average, that's the lifespan of a mouth. So the different <laughs> different creatures of different lifespans, you know. And the big mystery is what determines that, and we don't really know. That, that's a good scientific question still to ask. What we are learning is what the aging process is. And the big theory at the moment is that as you age, your body builds up toxins, if you like, and you can't handle them as effectively. And one big toxin is called reactive oxygen species, which is, which is actually a byproduct of nutrition. It's like the exhaust coming off the engine, if you like, when you, when you burn food, there's a byproduct. And that begins to cause damage. And as you age, that damage is more, more and more difficult to limit that damage. And we don't really know why. I mean, wh- why would our cells eventually age? We know cells die and your heart claps out and your, your kidneys go, you know. Um, the longest lifespan of any human was a French woman that's been documented, Jean Calmet, left 122 years, you see. So that may be the ultimate limit. And she, she was, she was a laugher, wasn't she? she? She said a good laugh every day. <laughs> that was her secret. And she smoked. Amazing no she way. Did. She did, yeah. Um, and so she was a great example to us all, you know. What I love here is there's these zones in the world called blue zones where yes. people live to be a hundred. Yep. And there's one in Italy called Acaroli, which has been studied a lot. I mean, a lot of people are in their 90s in that that part of Italy, you know. Now, because I say they've been tormented by scientists and the scientists are killing them. So their experiments have poking them with a stick, you know. So that may be the end of them. But, um, but they've studied that. And again, nutrition is the absolute key to this. These people, wonderful balanced diet, the Mediterranean diet. That's right, yeah. And exercise, it's quite a hilly place. And not everybody walks everywhere. So they reckon it's a combination of exercise and the right food. And every part of the world where these blue zones occur, it's that combination seems to be the... Um, the second thing about acaroli is loads of rosemary in the diet, strangely. Rosemary? And, yeah, for some reason they grow loads of rosemary, then it's in everything. Uh, the question is, is there something in rosemary that's, um, that's prolonging their life? And there's a possibility. They're, they're studying that now to see if there's what? something in the rosemary. You know? And very often these blue zones have, have a chemical or a natural plant that they eat in excess, you see. So there could be something in that as well. So it's, isn't that fascination that, that idea that you could extend your life using these different different uh, approaches i guess folks you're listening to the real health podcast in association with leia healthcare with me carl henry i really hope you're enjoying the uh, discussion so far it's absolutely fascinating um in terms of longevity um 
Uh, Okinawa was another one. Yeah. There was a book. About, I remember reading a book about them. They lived to some phenomenal age. Or they had a huge percentage of, of centenarians. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It could be genetic partly because they're all related. They could be all second and third cousins, you know, and there's some <laughs> genetic basis for this. Because often you, you you marry your own community. Not, not that I'm saying there's any inbreeding that would be damaging, <laughs> but certainly there could be genetic part as well to this, you see. So the combination of that, and Okinawa is a good example. The Japanese are the poster child of longevity. They're living into their 80s and 90s and 100s. They've got the highest now lifespan of any country Have at the they? moment. Yeah. Although, mind you, Spain, just this morning I read, Spain is doing very well. They're living longer in Spain, so maybe they'll, they'll overtake Japan. But Japan is the first country to embrace what every Western country will have which is a lot of people over 65, much more than in the younger age groups. And then the question becomes, how does a society adapt to that? Mm-hmm. You know, And there's a horrendous statistic here called that they show that in Japan, the tipping point is when you're selling more adult diapers than baby diapers. <laughs> Isn't that horrendous? And this is true. So in Japan... That they reached that <laughs> point a few years ago, you see. So they're, they're turning playgrounds into exercise things for older people, for instance. So we're going to see a big societal change because of it. Because of the, and it's not wonderful that medicines achieved this, by the way. It's a triumph that people live now into a ripe old age. And good health is the secret, by mm-hmm. the way. So that will continue because of the, the medical advances that we're seeing. Wow. And of course, well, diet and exercise are, the, are two key components to that. Again, in the Japanese side, there's a lot of, a lot of fish, a lot of unrefined foods. It's, put, it's pairing it right back to eating basics. It's the, u- it's the usual simple, thing. Simple. And again, the science behind this is very strong. So there's, there's a type of worm called a nematode, which is a microscopic worm that's often studied in science labs as a living organism. They could quadruple the, length, the lifespan of that worm, can you believe it, by modifying some of the nutrition handling enzymes. They, right. made, they made mutants in some of the way the nutrients, especially glucose again, by the way. And they managed to quadruple the life of the worm by changing how it burned food. Isn't that incredible? So again, that's evidence. It has to be tied into nutrition. And we, we know this overeating will shorten your life there's no question obese people they take years off their lives because the machine is under stress you're, you're, you're full of all this excess fat you're burnt all the exhaust is coming off it's like, it's like a bad car running with a bad engine so, so the nutritional thing is, seems to be a key aspect so there's no question from a biological perspective um, obese People and obesity is eating you into an early grave. Absolutely. Yeah, and the ancients knew this. I mean, there was a Spanish motto, you, you, you eat your own grave, you see. So, so this was known that overeating was bad, you know, and obesity was bad. They could see them dying, I suppose, years ago. But now we're getting a handle on the, on the, on the molecular basis for that in many ways. But the strange thing is, Carl, after all this research, you still come back to, would you ever eat less and exercise more and get a good night's <laughs> sleep? You know, in, Calories out, sleep well, more. Well, you don't need, you know, in some ways science helps make that case I suppose and some people can't do that for whatever reason so so there are hopefully there will be ways of intervening medically to help people who can't and that, that, that's the goal of the science in some ways but it does come down to those simple principles one thing that we recommend to people to exercise and the reason why is that you feel better that you're happier that you're more satisfied I was fascinated to learn that there's two particular ages that you're particularly satisfied in life. Um, explain a little bit more this about that. Is to us. One of my favourite things in the book. <laughs> this is the great bit. Yes, yeah, so this was this study was done. I suppose about six or seven years ago now when they assessed people's level of happiness. Now, happiness is a slippery concept at the best of times. And how do you say, are you happy or are you not? Remember in Waiting for God, oh, one tramp says, oh, say you're happy. And God goes, yes, I'm happy. Are you happy? I'm happy. Then there's a hesitation. What do we do now? <laughs> you know, so, so happiness is strange. But certainly you peak in your early 20s at your level of happiness. 
it's down and down and down and down, right? And it bottoms out in your early 50s and then goes back up again. And lots of studies have shown this. It's a very strange kind of U-shaped curve. It's not clear why. It's not linked to if you're married, if you're single, if you have kids. That, that, that might be part of it. It doesn't yeah. seem to be. It seems to be something about the brain, you know? Really? And again, it could be to do with when you're in your 20s and 30s, you're trying to get a job and you're ambitious and you're anxious about that and trying to get a relationship going and all that. And then the neurons are firing away like Billy O to make you behave in that way. And eventually, in, and then in your early 50s, it seems to be the worst. And then you begin to realise those neurons might die off and the anxiety neurons are less. And then you get to be 60, 65, 70. I have to hell with it. You know, I'm just going to enjoy myself. Again. That seems to be the case. So my <laughs> advice to people who are feeling miserable, just wait. <laughs> you know, now I'm not trying to trivialise serious depression. You know, you never know. You will come out of this bottom curve and, and begin to feel a bit better about yourself. It's strange. Yeah, so, mad. Yeah, it's, it's unusual that. And again, you, you wouldn't believe it, would you? Um, but science at its best is big numbers and huge numbers of people were studied. Independent studies confirm this strange U-shaped curve for, for human happiness as well. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, okay, let's pull it to a slightly more morbid uh, topic, death and predictors of death. And obviously, we, we've talked about obesity, being overweight, being unfit. They're obvious predictors. But we can actually check levels in your blood and yeah. predict your risk of death. Well, death is coming to us all, you see. And uh, Towards the end of the book, I, I get to the death chapter, as you've seen, and uh, there's no, no point in shirking it. We've got to fake the, the Grim Reaper. Yeah. Um, and the science of death is a fascination. You wouldn't believe many in forensics and things. But this is another great one. You see, insurance companies want to know what, what's your risk of dying, and then I'll load up your premium, you know, that kind of thing. So they're always looking for indicators. Now, we know things like high cholesterol, all this stuff. But it's amazing that so they find five biomarkers in your blood, right? And if you had certain levels of those, there was a much higher risk of dying, like within a year or five years or 10 years. And it depends on the combination of the biomarkers. Um, and that tells us something very profound in a way, that um, our body is changing all the time. And some of us will die slightly younger than others, maybe a higher risk of a heart attack or a stroke. Th- those are big causes of mortality, of course. You know? And it turns out that you can pick up the signs of that in the blood diagnostically and and this is a big effort now to try to prevent it then because if you could see this in your blood would i change it and that's where statins and things come in by the way you know high high cholesterol if you lower cholesterol less likely to have a heart attack you know in the long term so again there's a lot of work going on trying trying to spot your your future health basically by markers it by what are called biomarkers in your body and death death is another one that they managed to predict but i thought it was a striking study and a question that we're going to get asked by lots of our listeners is can you buy can you buy that test can you go and get it done it's still a work in progress, you see. <laughs> but ultimately, you would be able to, I think, buy these te- the tests. And of course, there's the famous 23andMe, Dar, which we're familiar with. You send off your DNA sample, and it comes back with all who you're related to and all your genealogy. Tell in me that, about that. Is that is that real? I'm fascinated. Yeah, no, it's it's real up to a point. They got into trouble though by having diagnostic stuff in there because there are genetic risk factors for Alzheimer's, say, or Parkinson's. These aren't definitive, but they increase your risk of disease X. That's a population-wide thing, not you as an individual, and it gets a bit complicated. And they backed off that a bit because it's it's a bit too complicated. And to send a you know in your email, oh God, I'm going to have Throw Alzheimer's. Post, it's yeah. terrifying, you know. Um, <laughs> what it is good for is your genealogy. So I I did my 23andMe, and I'm definitely yeah. Irish, which is good, right? Uh, I'm an O'Neill, probably. There are markers for the surnames, incredible, really common names. Yeah. So my father, if he were alive, would be relieved because <laughs> it confirms I'm an O'Neill. Uh, but the best bit for me was it'll tell you who any famous people who are who there are data in the database if you're related to them. And I found like I'm the fifth cousin of Susan Sarandon, isn't that? No way. So I emailed her. I said, invite <laughs> me to the not. premiere of your next movie because as as a, as a member of the family, she never got back. To me. Anyway, you can find out who you're related to. Two twenty three and me. The health thing. 
caution. Now, it does give certain things. Like in my case, I've got a hypersensitivity to warfarin, and, and that's a definitive thing. That, that's really strong link to that, you know, and that could be useful. You never know. And was that picked up through the test? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So certain things come up that are robust wow. and aren't that you're going to die of X necessarily, mm-hmm. but, you know, to avoid certain things. And it's quirky. I mean, some of this stuff is interesting, and people find it fascinating. And by the way, genetics keeps moving forward, remember, and the new variants of genes keep getting discovered, and they keep updating it. You get, you get Every month or so, I get a little ping, you know, and I can find, I find how my relatives are. I got a ping um, last week. There's 30 more people in America related to me. Not just me, obviously, but they're fourth and fifth cousins. You know, so it's, it's a distant relationship. That's so you get mad. that information as well. Your extended family can be related. You might get a visit from an American, or, uh, you know, knocking on your door. You for never know. Scene. You never know. And I'd welcome them. It'd be great. Um, okay, let's make things a little happier now. Love and finding love. Yes. Fascinating. Isn't it great? Yeah, we love this. Tell me more. This is early in the book. That's, that's more on the positive side. Yeah, I mean, so I got into that because how I got that chapter was, you know, uh, Homo sapiens eventually goes into Europe. I mean, we leave Africa about 50,000 years ago. The dates are still a bit uncertain. 50, 60,000. We're in Europe and we meet the Neanderthals. And they are a type of Homo species like us, but they're a bit different, you know. And the big question is, did we have sex with them? And lo and behold, we did. We definitely had sex with them. And then we killed them. As the Black Widow spider, I call this in a way. They all die off, but we carry some of their genes and why would we why would we be attracted to a brutish caveman that that chapter begins with like it seemed unlikely you know and yet we were and and the, and the science of love is a fascination and again perfume companies invest in this can you come up with a new perfume to attract a mate for instance you know and it's just intriguing isn't it how we pick our mate and there's a biological question so it begins with pheromones and there's no doubt now we humans exude them like other species, uh, normally in our sweat. And then you're attracted to someone without even knowing it because the sense of smell gets to you. And the best evidence there is if, if, when a woman's ovulating, which means she's now receptive, she'd exude the pheromones by the bucket load, you know. And then you're drawn in. The man is attracted then, you know. <laughs> and then we're also attracted to certain physical features. And it's universal across all cultures. So, so the 7 to 10 waist-hip ratio on a woman, men see that and like the look of that. 7 to yep, 10. Yep. Whereas for women, it's 9 to 10, shoulder to hip. So women, on average, and like, there's differences, you know. On average, they're like a broad shoulder guy with hips that aren't too yep. wide. Men like, you know, a curvier figure. And that predicts fertility, you see. And maybe in the man, it predicts strength in some way. So, so these are kind of written into our So you're subconsciously looking for these things in a mate Absolutely. in a nightclub in a pub without even knowing it whatever situation these are the things you're naturally yeah. looking for without even knowing it and, and then of course um, the, the strange one is we're attracted to pe- people who look like our relatives which seems a bit yeah, you, I don't like the sound of that <laughs> you know that seems, oh, I don't want that but it's true and if you look at couples actually they're often they look like not quite brother and sister but you'll see the look of a father or something and a mother and it might be into the person and the reason for this we think is it's safer you know you're picking someone in your own clan and your own tribe, you know, and that might make you feel a bit safer and then they, well, they'll stick around more. That's one possibility for this. Of course, you can't be too related and that's true as well. We, we, we do repel that as well. We don't, you know, obviously for inbreeding is a bad thing and evolution, this is just evolution set all this up. So they're, they're kind of some of the rules of the dating game. What I love is um, when you fall in love then your body surges with all these hormones. It's just a purely hormonal response. Uh, desire is testosterone, estrogen, that makes you desire someone. And then when you're in love, it's dopamine. Dopamine rush. Now it's just like heroin. I'm not joking. And if you if you image someone's brain who's in love, like that first wonderful 
three to six Honeymoon months. Phase, yep. of course. It's just yeah. like you've taken a shot of heroin. I'm not joking you. The brain, the same parts of the brain. And you're obsessed. You go by their house on the way home from school. You check their Facebook page. You're addicted to that person. It really is a true. And that biology wants this because you've got to get it on, as Marvin Gaye said. You know? <laughs> so if you're only partly interested, you might be able to hang around in the rain for hours to see the other person. You see. And, then, and then eventually it turns into a mature relationship and that's oxytocin is the hormone that goes up there, you see. You can forget Cupid and an arrow we're machines you see and, and we're pushing buttons here you know to make all this happen so isn't it, isn't it really good so all those bottles of love potions that you see bought over the years were they were they laced with well, dopamine or oxytocin or you well, know by accident yeah, they, they, they had you know plants had these smells in them and I guess you're just using empirical observation <laughs> oh that, that's a better smell and there are two types of perfume I'm sure you know the nightwear and the daywear women wear different perfumes different <laughs> times maybe the nightwear has more testosterone in it you know and the daywear is less but, um, but yeah the, the perfume Perfume people are trying to replicate this in many ways. And we do respond to smell. I mean, there's no question, as you probably know. We're very drawn to how someone smells. And we often think, oh, I don't like the smell of that person, you know? Not, not, not B.O. Yeah, now, yeah. but you know, and we are, we're often um, using our sense of smell as part of this attraction process. And in terms of, so are the perfume companies making their perfumes with the bio, well, biochemistry well, that's happened. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. So once oxytocin was discovered as the bonding hormone, and by the way, you make oxytocin in, not just through love uh, with men and women or whatever, like, uh, that, that sort of aspect. The baby and the mother, massive oxytocin rush, and then you begin to love the baby and vice versa. And oxytocin, in fact, triggers a big desire for milk in the baby, which is interesting, right? Now, some companies put oxytocin in the perfumes. Can you believe it? Or you can spray it on. This is ridiculous. It didn't seem to work. Again, it's, it's not as simple as oxytocin. As I said, there'll be two consequences of it. If a man smells oxytocin, he might be attracted to you or desire milk. You know, they're the two <laughs> options here. You know? so, um, but yeah, they've tried to make oxytocin perfumes incredibly. <laughs> Don't seem to work as simple as that. You know, it's not quite as straightforward. Maybe it's all about timing or you need to have the candlelit dinner and yeah, the mood yeah. music as well, maybe. I don't know. You know. It's not as simple as that. I suppose. It's fascinating. Um, beer goggles. Ah, Yes. Tying it in with love and partners and meeting people in nightclubs, beer goggles. Well, the things that scientists get up to, they've, stu- they've studied this as well. Now, alcohol, we're talking about here, of course, and alcohol relaxes, you remember, it's, it's actually yep. depressing, strange. But you feel more relaxed and more kind of cool and chilled and so on. There's Conf- no doubt. Confident. Well, there's no doubt that the more drink you have, the more the other person looks attractive. Maybe evolution made this happen. You know, there's a famous statistic there that I don't know, 40% of kids in England are conceived when one or both partners are drunk. You see, so maybe, maybe it's going to get rid of all that repression. Um, but the beer goggles and the best bit of this was it's especially true in women <laughs> more than men really like men reported a bit of course but women when they're drinking will find a guy who they would normally not find attractive at all oh, they suddenly find them attractive <laughs> so, so, so it's a scientifically proven fact that beer goggles are true you know so be very careful is my advice it's not you just know. an excuse it's not just an excuse <laughs> exactly <laughs> Folks, uh, this episode of The Real Health Podcast has been a little bit different. Uh, normally, we have guests on. We look for tips and content and takeaways. Every now and again, it's nice to do a podcast and just have a chat with an absolutely fascinating guest, someone who's interesting um, and someone who we can certainly have a bit of a giggle with. Uh, Professor Luke O'Neill, you've been a fascinating guest. Your book is in stores now. Uh, what's the name of the book? It is called Humanology. Yes, it's in bookstores right now, Easton's and Hodges Figures. And it's also on Amazon and even on Kindle, if you can't afford the hard copy. <laughs> Fantastic images, Carl. I'm delighted with what Gil did they turned this into a beautiful I thought it would be a little paperback initially it's a beautiful book with all these images everything we've spoken about there's good there's good diagrams and illustrations so it's a wonderful coffee table book as well but it's available in all good bookstores right now
Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming into the Real Health Podcast. Folks, that's it for today's episode of the podcast in association with Leia Healthcare with myself, Carl Henry. If you have any questions, as ever, do let us know. It's realhealth at independent.ie or at carlhenrypt on Twitter and on Instagram. And as always, don't forget to rate and review or even rate. We like a good rating. We're up to over 150. Uh, we're heading for our 600,000 listeners so far uh, over the next episode or so. We're making our way to that magic million mark and uh, we'll be very, very excited when we get there. Have a fantastic week. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'll see you next week. Slon. Leia Healthcare. It's good to live. Proud sponsor of The Real Health Podcast with Carl Henry.